Turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to continue in the series, this series on trials that we started last week, facing trials or embracing the trials of life. James chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, last week I started off with a trial about Clemson. Can't use them this week. But I can in a sense. They lost a game, right, last week, and they learned from it, right? And they won yesterday. But let me start with a small trial. Imagine yourself on the way home from work. And you're on Clemson Boulevard. And you happen to be going by the Krispy Kreme donut shop. And the sign is on, hot and now. And you say, I got to get me one of those. So you pull off. And your mind is just filled with a glazed donut with the chocolate dripping all over it. Am I making you hungry already? Yeah, I am. Um, but, but so you get this donut, and you're so excited because you're thinking all the way home, I am going to get this donut home. I'm going to pour a large glass of milk. I'm going to put ice in it. I put ice in it to make it really cold, right? And then I'm going to devour this donut. So when I get it home, I want to make it hot now again, so I put it in the microwave for 10 seconds. You only need 10 seconds, right? And you pull it out, and then you get a phone call. You get a phone call. So you go off in the other room, you talk on the phone for 10 minutes, and you come back, and to your surprise and your dismay, your donut is gone. It's been stolen. You respond with screams of displeasure towards the child who fesses up to the crime. <laughs> Have you ever experienced this before? You blame your anger on the crime of thievery. And you sentence your child to an hour without bail to their room without internet, iPod, TV, cell phone, Game Boy. Have I covered everything? Your anger is not based on your child's failure, but it's based on your lack of a donut. You are not concerned about your child's future growth in righteousness, but you're instead lashing out in anger. Has anybody ever done that before? I have. Instead of worshiping God, listen to this, instead of worshiping God... You are worshiping the idol of pleasure and comfort. 
trials, this is the most important thing, trials are a way to see what is in your heart. Trials are a way to see what is in your heart at the moment of the trial. And if Christ is the Lord of your hearts, then you're going to respond in obedience to the trial and fruit will be produced. But if you're not, if you're worshiping an idol at that time, then the fruit that's going to be produced is nothing and it will be produced as thorns. This morning we're going to look at the trials of life. And we're going to look at how we can embrace the trials of life. Now, James wrote this epistle to Jewish Christians who had fled Jerusalem because of persecution. We see that in Acts chapter 7 and 8, where we see that Stephen was martyred, and then Saul went from house to house arresting Christians, torturing some, and some were put to death. Kind of reminds me of what's going on right now in Afghanistan, right? Um, terrible. James is not writing about the platitudes of the philosophical nature of evil in the world. No, he, he is writing to people who are actually suffering. He's writing to people who have, whose jobs have been taken away. He's writing to people who, have, who are being tortured. He's writing to people who may have already died because of persecution. And can you imagine this persecution was coming from fellow Jews? It may have been coming from even family members. Family members. Now these are brand new Christians facing persecution for the first time. So James writes to them as a loving pastor trying to comfort his sheep during this tremendous trial. Look at verse 2, and we'll look at a proper preparation. It says, Consider it all joy, joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Notice the verse says, when. We talked about this last week. When you encounter various trials. Most live life looking at the trials of life as a bad thing. They think in terms of if instead of when. They falsely see this verse as saying, consider it all joy, my brethren, if you encounter a trial. But that isn't what the verse says. It says when you encounter trials. Because you know what? Um, trials are not optional in this life. They're mandatory. They're mandatory. Just like persecution for the Christian is not optional. It's mandatory. Jesus says that in John 15. Well, you can imagine the shock of these Christians as they experience this for the first time. It's like when I joined the Air Force. I remember going to the recruiter and they showed me a video of what it would be like to go to the training, Lackland Air Force Base. Your first day at Lackland Air Force Base. So they show on the video, you pull up in a bus, right? And this sergeant gets on, and he's dressed in blues, and he looks really great, and he's smiling, and he says, Welcome to Lackland Air Force Base, the home of the United States Air Force. Okay? 
And I thought, wow, that's great. That looks really cool. So when I get there, actually get there, right, I pull up in the bus, and uh, I guess that sergeant that was in the movie, he had the day off, okay? Because another sergeant got on the bus, and he started yelling and screaming at us, and he started cursing at us, and he told us to get off the bus. I was in shock, you know, I, and I looked over at the guy next to me, and I said, what happened to the movie? What happened to the movie? You know, and I can imagine these new Christians were, were just like that. What happened to the Christian life that, that I thought of, you know? We're being persecuted. They, they probably couldn't believe it. Then they would naturally think, you know what? The only way that I'm going to be happy in this life is if I try to avoid persecution. Some of them probably thought that. And many of us think the same thing. The only way to be happy in life is to avoid all, all trials. So the if never becomes a win in verse 2. So we take great pains in avoiding trials. You know, when money gets short, we pull out the credit card. And then we occur, incur more debt. Or some of us don't go to funerals because we don't want to think of death. Or we avoid hospitals because we don't want to get sick. Or we avoid small groups because we don't want people to know that we have problems. Even though everybody in the small group are justified sinners. And you know, and if we, if we don't avoid trials in a physical way, many times we can avoid them mentally. I remember when I was younger, and sometimes I still do this, a trial comes, and I've seen the trial before, and I go, I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle this. In fact, I've messed up with this trial once before, or a couple times before, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle it. So what do I do? I size myself up, I look at myself, and I find myself wanting. I find myself wanting and you know what? Human beings do that all the time. It starts out when we're really little. And you know, you probably don't remember this, but you know, remember when you're trying to walk? You've seen it with little, little babies. They're trying to get to the couch, which is five feet away, and they're going like this, right? And in a sense, they're sizing themselves up, and they're saying, can I make it? Can I make it to the couch? And then later on, when you're taking swimming lessons, you know, Swim five feet to that wall. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to drown. Right? And you say, please put your hands underneath me until I get to the wall. Right? And then when you get your first job as a teenager, you think, can I make it through the first day? We size ourselves up many times. We size ourselves up. And many times we find ourselves wanting. And the results of that is usually fear and unbelief. But when we look at ourselves in Christ, when we look at ourselves in Christ, it leads us to faith and obedience. Kind of reminds me of, remember when the people of Israel went into the promised land and you have the ten spies and Joshua and Caleb, the two good spies, and the ten spies go into the land, they look at the people and they say, they're huge! 
you know, forget it. We're not going to be able to do this. And they looked at themselves as grasshoppers, right? And they looked at them as giants. They looked at themselves. They sized themselves up. They said, we can't do this. And so they were grasshoppers. And it says, and so they were. Because they thought of themselves of that, so they were. They didn't walk by faith in the trial. They didn't look to Christ. They looked at themselves. Remember Peter last week? Remember him getting out of the boat? Remember he kept his eyes on Christ, and as he kept his eyes on Christ, he was walking by faith, and everything went well. But then when he looked around and started looking at the waves and felt the wind blowing, right? He started to sink. He was sizing himself up, and he's probably thinking, you know what? I'm not supposed to be out here. I'm not supposed to be able to walk on water. And he started sinking. And what did Jesus do? Immediately pulled him out. Immediately pulled him out. Look, at, look back at verse 2. It says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. There's a variety of trials that we can face in life. Many of you are facing a variety of trials right now in your life. Many different types of trials. And in the context of this passage, in verses 9 and 11, it talks about the trials of poverty and prosperity. And if you think about it, with our country, with everybody here and in our country, we really don't have a problem with poverty as other countries do. I mean, in India, there are people that live in cardboard boxes. Okay? Um, so poverty is really not our problem. Even our poor have roofs over their head most of the time. But there can be a problem even in our prosperity. And it can even be as simple as not having a donut, right? Whatever the trial is, whatever the trial is in your life, the purpose is to test us. The purpose is to teach us. Its purpose is to reveal what is in your hearts at the time of the trial. And if Christ is the Lord of your hearts at the moment of the trial, then we will obey and fruit will be produced. And if an idol is present in our hearts, then the results will be disobedience. And one of the trials in this passage is prosperity. And most of us face that trial every day. Israel faced that problem in the Old Testament, remember? Uh, let me read to you from Deuteronomy. It says this, Then God shall come about when the Lord your God... Then it shall come about when the Lord your God will bring you into the land which he swore to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Did they do that? No. In their prosperity, what did they do? They forgot about God. And they thought that we did it ourselves. They patted themselves on the back. They forgot that God is the one who owned everything that they had, and God wanted them to be faithful stewards of what he had given them. God responded to their sin by saying this in Malachi 3, or as I call him, Malachi, the Italian prophet. Malachi 3 says this, 8 eight and 10, it says, Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? So they were denying it. God's saying, you're robbing me. And they're going, we're not robbing you. We're not robbing you. They're, they were oblivious to their sin. God's trying to show them their idol, and they're oblivious to it. And then, then he says, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. What were they doing? They were trusting in themselves. They were trusting in their own wallet. They, they didn't want to trust God with everything. And many times we do the same thing, don't we? It kind of reminds me of the rich young ruler. He had a trial of prosperity too. Remember that in Mark chapter 10? Jesus comes to him. The rich young ruler says, How can I enter the kingdom of God? And what does Jesus say? Keep the commandments. And what does the rich young ruler What does the rich young ruler say? He says, I've kept them all my life. I kept them all my life. And then it says Jesus loved him. And I believe later on in the book he becomes a believer. But at that point he wasn't. And it says Jesus loved him. And then he says this. And he shows him his idol. He says, go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And come follow me. And what did he do? He walked away sad because he didn't want to follow Christ and he didn't want to give up his idol. He didn't want to turn from his idol and turn to Christ. That's what Christ was saying. Follow me. Basically, follow me is the gospel. Come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You know, there are some who are listening right now who have many trials, loss of jobs, loss of loved ones, maybe a divorce, or facing death, even now. And Christ is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just like the rich young ruler. He didn't have a real faith. And that's what the trial was for. Many times trials are for unbelievers to show them that they don't have a real faith that they need Christ, that they need the gospel, that Christ died for their sins. He paid for all of them on the cross. And then he not only did that, 
but he gives them a righteousness that's not their own by living out the law perfectly and calling them to come to faith and repentance in him. Well, the rich young ruler walked away sad, and that leads to the next point, which is the opposite, is a joyful attitude. Look at, um, look at verse 2 again. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James calls each of us to have joy when we're facing trials. Now, some people have misunderstood this to mean a superficial glibness. Um, like saying, oh, I'm so joyful that my house just burned down. Yay! You know? Or, or my child has cancer. Or um, my spouse just committed adultery. That's not what this passage is talking about. One writer said this, this passage is commanding us to make a careful and deliberate decision to have joy even in the midst of pain and sorrow of trials. James is not ordering an all-encompassing joyful emotion during severe trials, nor is he demanding that his readers must enjoy their trials or that trials are joyful. He knew, as did the writers of Hebrews, that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but is painful. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says there are many different emotions when you're facing trials. There's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. And there's a time to dance. But can a believer truly have joy in the midst of a trial? I'll give you an example. I remember when my grandfather died years ago. Um, that was the first family member that died in my family. And he had just become a Christian about six months earlier. So when I went to that funeral, I was mourning the loss of my grandfather. I knew I was going to miss him tremendously. But deep down inside, I had joy. Not this, yay! But a deep down joy that I knew where my grandfather was. And you know, when the pastor was up front preaching the funeral, he pointed to my grandfather's casket and he said that my grandfather was not there anymore. That his body's there is a shell, but his soul is in heaven right now. And, and I just inside was exploding with joy knowing that and also knowing that the gospel was going forth to every person in that room that were my family members that weren't believers. Can a believer have joy in the midst of a trial? Well, 2 Corinthians 7.14 says, In my affliction, my joy knows no bounds. Acts chapter 5, 40 and 41, The apostles rejoiced after being flogged because they felt privileged to suffer for Jesus' sake. Acts 16.25, Paul and Silas sing praises to God 
in prison after being flogged. It reminds me of a pastor. His name was Lloyd Ogilvy. I think he's written uh, devotionals. You've probably read some of his devotionals. But he said he had the worst year of his life. His wife had cancer. She had five surgeries in one year. You can imagine uh, watching your own wife go through that kind of suffering. And then he had a staff member quit his church. It was a small church. And he was thoroughly discouraged. And he said this, The greatest discovery that I have made in the midst of these difficulties is that I can have joy when I don't feel like it. And he called it artesian joy. Artesian joy. Whenever I have the, whenever, when I have every reason to feel beaten, I felt joy. In spite of everything, listen to this, God gave me the conviction of being loved and the certainty that nothing could separate me from Him. It wasn't a happiness. It wasn't a gush. It wasn't a jolliness, but a constant flow of His Holy Spirit through me. At no time did He, God, give me the easy confidence that everything would work out as I wanted or on my timetable, but that he would be, he was in charge and that he would give me and my family enough courage for each day. And joy is the result of that. That leads to my third point, which is an understanding mind. Look at verse 3. It says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Look at that. It says knowing or understanding. Understanding. Um, we have to understand what the purpose of the trial is. And when we understand it, that's a powerful thing. When we know that trials are not accidents, when we know that they're not bad luck, but that God is using them to grow us to maturity, that's when we can face them with joy. Remember, Ogilvy said this, that he had a conviction of being loved and the certainty that nothing could separate him from that love. And when you have that conviction, you can face anything. You know, do you know, let me ask you this, do you know do you have the certainty that no matter what trial you face in life, that God will never let you go? That's what John chapter 10 says, verse 27 through 29. It says that God the Father has you in His hand and nobody can snatch you from it, not even yourself. And Romans 8, 35 through 39 says that nothing can separate you from His love. God will never let you go, no matter what the trial is. And listen to this. No matter how severe it is, and listen to this, and no matter if you pass or fail, 
the trial. Did you hear that? Some of you have a hard time with that. Listen to what Paul Tripp said about this. He says, let me state it plainly. Your hope is not to be found in your willingness and your ability to endure, but in God's unshakable, enduring commitment to never turn from His work of grace. Your hope is that you have been welcomed into communion with one who will endure no matter what. Why is this so important to understand? Because your endurance will be spotty at best. There will be moments when you forget and you will live like a grace amnesiac. There will be times when you get discouraged and, while, and will quit doing the good things that God calls you to do. There will be moments, big and small, when you willingly rebel. Perfect love, perfect endurance demands that. Perfection. And since none of us are there yet, we must look outside of ourselves for hope. Your hope for enduring is not found in your character. It's not found in your strength. It's found in the Lord's. Think about that. And remember Peter. He got out of the boat of presumed safety to go to the one who is true safety. He got out of the boat and he walked by faith trusting in God. He wasn't trusting in himself or he wouldn't have endured. And we saw Peter fail many times, didn't we? Well, that leads to a mature walk. Well, wait a minute. It leads me to another trial of prosperity. Uh, if you remember David facing a trial of prosperity, King David, he faced a trial of prosperity. What do I mean by that? He was king. He was rich. He took the, the season off to go to war, right? Sat on the rooftop. And what happened then? He fell into sin. And then what happened? He ran. He ran from God. You know, many times when we fail in sin, when we fail in a trial, God's trying to show us what the idol is, and we run from Him. God doesn't want us to run from Him like David did. He wants us to run to Him in repentance and faith. The Christian life is a daily walk of repentance and faith, and trials reveal the idols of our heart which must be turned from in repentance. And that leads us to a mature walk. Look at verse 4. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. A mature walk doesn't come from the trials themselves. It doesn't come automatically. It comes from us obeying in the trial. It comes from endurance in the trial. 
I heard a story once from a person in the church. They were on vacation. They went to New England somewhere in New England along the coastline. And there was this place that you could buy oysters and open them up and you'd look, at it, look in them and find pearls. Um, some in you know, terrible shape and some in better shape. And, uh, but you, you know, it was pretty cool to open up an oyster and see a pearl. What causes pearls? Irritation, yeah, right. Sand or some kind of particle gets in the oyster, it causes it to be irritated, and that's what makes the pearl. One writer says this, the oyster simply covers it with the most precious part of his being and makes of it a pearl. The irritation that it was causing is stopped by encrusting it with a pearly formation. A true pearl, therefore, is simply a victory over irritation. Every irritation that gets into our lives today is an opportunity for a pearl culture. Do you ever think of trials that way? As an opportunity? That's what you need to think. It's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to become more like Christ. It's an opportunity to endure. Well, in closing, I was thinking about what is the, one of the greatest biblical characters that faced trials well? Well, you think of Job, right? Uh, automatically, of course, is Christ. He's the most important. But then I, I always think of Joseph. If there's ever a character, and he's one of my favorite characters in the Bible, if there's ever a person in the Bible that faced trials well, it was Joseph. And he was 17 years old. Remember what happened? His brothers see him coming along and they say, let's kill him. How would you like to find that out about your family? That they're plotting to kill you. That would be a pretty major trial in your life, right? And that's what the brothers were doing. They were plotting to kill him as he walked up that day and he was 17 years old. And then they decide, after throwing him in a ditch... Right? And guys, by the way, when he was thrown in the ditch, he wasn't going, yay, this is great. My brothers are going to kill me. No, he wasn't doing that. He was pleading for them. Stop, my brothers, don't do this. And so they throw him in a ditch. They sell him into slavery. He goes under Potiphar. Then Potiphar's wife hits on him, right? And then he's blamed for... Uh, for attempted rape, which wasn't true. Then he's arrested. Then he's forgotten in jail. And this trial goes on and on and on for 13 years. 13 years. And finally, finally he becomes second under Pharaoh. He becomes second under Pharaoh, right? And then when his brothers, years later, come to stand before him, when he could say, as second under Pharaoh, off with your heads, right? He had already forgiven them. And what did he say? He said to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. How did Joseph handle the trials of life? 
How did, what did he understand? What was the knowledge that he, that he knew? He knew that God loved him. He knew that God wouldn't let him go. He knew that God was in control of all things, that nothing was happening in his life. Just think, you're, you're, you're sold into slavery. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by bad luck. And that God was working. He knew this thousands of years before Romans 8, that God was working all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? To make us more like him. How are you doing in the trials of life? And that's the question I want to ask you as we come to the Lord's Supper. How are you doing? Are you getting better? And I don't mean better yourself. I mean, are you getting more sanctified? Are you becoming more like Christ? Or are you getting bitter because you don't shift into neutral? You don't shift into neutral. And, and you think about King David running probably for a year. And after, after he commits adultery, what does he do? Then he murders somebody to cover it up. Instead of seeing his sin right away and repenting, he goes on and on. And remember, God's purpose for us as believers is when we see in a trial what's in our hearts, and if it's an idol, he wants us to turn from it. And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. When we see sin, God wants us not to run, but to turn to him in repentance and faith. And that's what he wants us to do this morning before the Lord's Supper.